Friends, I'd like to welcome you to this week's edition of Bishop Sheen Presents, a program where we feature some of the wit and wisdom of the venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. It is my sincerest hope that the reflections that you will hear today on this broadcast will truly touch your heart and in a way show you that your life is worth living. Hello, my dear friends, and welcome to another edition of Bishop Sheen Presents. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me for this opportunity uh, to learn our faith together uh, in the good hands of the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. We've been sharing with you Archbishop Sheen's Catechism series, and um, again, a beautiful 50-part series where he took the time to record what he liked to say was his convert classes. And he recorded 50 lessons on vinyl uh, back in 1965. And many of those lessons are available now through, you know, digital downloads, uh, MP3 formats. And so may I recommend that you try to pick up a copy of Archbishop Sheen's Catechism uh, you can Google it sometimes. It's called the Sheen Catechism. Uh, some people call it Life is Worth Living Catechism, but it's a great catechism. So, <laughs> again, who better to teach us the faith than Archbishop Sheen? And he literally had hundreds of thousands of converts uh, to his record. He would give instruction, uh, sometimes individually, other times in large group settings, but he was always teaching the faith. And he is quoted many times as saying that the greatest joy in his life is sharing the faith. And that's why, of course, he was the head of the Pontifical Mission Society, which, uh, of course, their work is to help the poor, but also to share the gospel. And so I uh, love doing that work. So uh, we're going to share the gospel with you today. Uh, we're going to share a catechism lesson uh, from his series on the topic of baptism and uh, again a beautiful sacrament and but we'll start off with a, a lighter side of course uh, Archbishop Sheen's television show life is worth living he, he ca captivated uh, 30 million people every week <laughs> tuning into his program and uh, we're going to share with you an episode with the title character building uh, we hear that all the time you need to build up your character so He's going to uh, share with us now uh, his uh, wit and wisdom. And so may I invite you just to sit back and relax and enjoy uh, this great voice, uh, this uh, man of faith, this man of great uh, love for the Lord and love for the church. And so you'll hear it in his voice. So may I present to you the Venerable Archbishop Sheen as he gives a reflection titled Character Building. Please enjoy. Friends, I heard a very interesting conversation the other day between a schoolteacher and the mother of a child. And the mother was saying to the schoolteacher, she said, Now I know Reginald has been throwing inkwells out of the window and throwing spitballs at you, but 
Under no consideration must you spank Reginald. It will give him a guilt complex. Just hit the boy in front of him. It will frighten him. <laughs> and in contrast to that, I read something from Lincoln. Lincoln said that a river always follows the line of least resistance. That is why it is crooked. The same is true of a man. Well, if you put both of these stories together, you already have some suggestion of what we may possibly talk about in this telecast, namely character. Books are written on character, and they all make character training very simple and easy. As a matter of fact, it is not quite as simple as it is presented in these books, because man himself is very complex. Now, I shall have to draw a picture of a man, and this man, of course, stands for humanity. Um, I'm, I'm developing in my drawing, so this is going to be a more elaborate man than I have drawn before. Um, oh, I must tell you that I was asked, why is it you never draw a woman? <laughs> now, I can draw a woman. I'll show you how. I draw women. Oh, yes. It's a cyclone, Bob, a high wind. A human being is really very complex, made up of body, soul, flesh, spirit, sensate, and the love of pleasure, full of ideals, also, capable of leading an exterior life, that is to say, directed to uh, the world and its pleasures, or it can lead an interior life. Either one of these is going to dominate. Now, it's easy to have the body dominate. All you have to do is to let go. It's very hard to have the spirit and the soul, and ideals dominate. The character resides in this domination. Let us consider the domination of each. First of all, the domination of the body. The law that covers the domination of the carnal is what we might call the law of degeneration. We hear a great deal about evolution and we're very much inclined to believe that evolution is automatic. As a matter of fact, it is not automatic. There is also operating in nature a law of degeneration by which we are pulled down, dragged down to what is worse. Things do not become better by the mere fact that they exist in time. For example, a fence does not get whiter in time. And if you do not exercise your muscles, they atrophy. A garden does not become a better garden just simply by leaving it to time. The weeds will grow as well as the flowers. If we do not exercise our mind, well, our mind eventually reaches a stage where about the only thing it can enjoy is a picture magazine or light stories. It loses all capacity for thought. Darwin once gave a very interesting example about this law of degeneration. He said, picture a bird fancier 
bringing pigeons to a high degree of cultivation. Some of them are white, others black, and others spotted, and others striped. Put them all on an island. Leave them alone for 20 or 30 years. You go back, and you find that they are all a dirty slate blue. They have conformed to a type. The law of degeneration operated. Naturalists tell us that the mole once had eyes to see. But the mole chose to grovel in the ground, not to use God's sunlight. And nature, as if it were a judge seated in judgment, spoke to the mole and said, if you will not use the eyes that God have, has given you, then they shall be taken away. It's what we read in the, in the gospel. Take the talent away. How shall we escape if we neglect? In each and every one of us, there is a bias and a pull toward evil. And unless we resist it, it will get the better of us. When a man is falling from a, a skyscraper, he's alive when he passes the 15th floor, but the principle of death is in him. The man is poisoned, and an antidote is brought to him. It does not make very much difference whether he throws the antidote out of the window or just ignores it. As long as he does not take it and resist the poison, the principle of death operates. And so evil the kind of a law of gravitation can pull us down and down and down until we become, as some adults are, emotional children. One of the characteristic notes of a child is that there is a, a terrific tension between its needs and its satisfactions. That's why it cries so readily. And adults grow up that way. Coffee's not warm in the morning. Morning paper's not there. Secretary doesn't come in when you ring. <laughs> and a thousand things like that. Then there is a kind of a, uh, of a reversion to the child once again. I heard of a man who got on the Pennsylvania Railroad in Washington, and he went into the dining car and he ordered artichokes. There were no artichokes. He said, I'm the artichoke king of America. I spend $75,000 a year shipping artichokes on the Pennsylvania Railroad. And I come into the dining car and I cannot find a single artichoke. Is that gratitude? And as soon as the train got to Baltimore, the steward immediately telegraphed ahead to Wilmington, rush artichokes. They put artichokes on at Wilmington. They had them all ready to serve them at Philadelphia. He said, now I won't eat them. I'd rather be mad. The fact of the matter is that people who are always wanting their own will are unhappy. man who is self-seeking eventually ends up by hating himself. That's one law when we just let our body and our egotism and our selfish desires go without any resistance. Now, the other law is what we might call the law of 
self-perfection. This involves a certain amount of self-restraint. Just as soon as one speaks of self-restraint, uh, there is always one group that will say, yes, but you should not repress yourself. Now, if there's ever any nonsense in the world, it's that because something is going to be repressed. If you repress evil, good comes up. If you repress good, evil comes up. If you repress the idea that you're going to rob a bank, then honesty comes up. Something's going to be repressed. It all, therefore, depends upon how we are going to tame that which is in us that is wrong and errant. And we can do it in three ways. We can do it by amputation. We can do it by mortification. And we can do it by limitation. Amputation refers to something that is all evil. Mortification refers to something that is good and evil. In other words, mixed. Limitation refers to that which is good. To give an example in the physical order, this would be like a cancer or any other malignant growth. This would be like a fever. Man has a fever, you don't cut off his head. But you cut out the malignant growth. This is like caviar all good. <laughs> when is amputation to be used? Whenever there is a habit that is intrinsically evil. Let us take a habit. For example, uh, well, alcoholism. Alcoholism is, a, is an addiction in which a man becomes a slave to drink. It started with a free act. Then the free act became a habit. The habit became a reflex. And then much of the energy of his will went into the reflex action. The result was that he seemed to have little power left for decision. When one becomes an alcoholic, is it better, with God's grace, with the cooperation of the will of the alcoholic, to break it off gradually or to amputate it. When you're dealing with anything that is intrinsically evil, you amputate it. Cut it out all at once. Hard? No, it's probably not as hard as a lingering indulgence. Suppose we were talking about wife beating. That's intrinsically evil. Should you break off that gradually and should you say, all right, I'll break it off gradually. But from Thursday, from two to three, I want to have the right to beat my wife. <laughs> Makes nonsense, doesn't it? Our blessed Lord said, if thy hand scandalizes thee, cut it off, cast it away. If thy foot scandalizes thee, cut it off and cast it away. 
thy eye scandalizes thee, pluck it out and cast it away. To develop character, therefore, in the things that are evil, immediate withdrawal and a complete break. But when we refer, see, my angel has uh, washed off my board. I forgot to tell him. You know, an angel never has this problem anyway. That's the reason he washed it all off, because he has no body. He doesn't have to struggle with temptations like we do. It's when you come to something that is a mixture of good and evil, then there's mortification. For example, is the eye good? Yes, the eye is very good, but should you look at a light that is too bright? No. Why not? Because it's bad for the eye. Is the ear good? Should you hear a sound that might break the eardrum? No. That would be bad. What then does one do? One limits the operation of this faculty to that which is good, and he cuts off what is evil. Now, applying that to the development of character, the eye should not be looking at everything, as it would not look at a light that's too bright. Hence, it will not do every kind of reading, because it will not want garbage inside of the brain. And furthermore, when the wrong kind of ideas get into the mind, they finally get down into subconsciousness and they come out and act. So one mortifies the eye from that which is evil. Same is true of the ear. Hearing is good. Gossip, backbiting, slander. The ear refuses to take these in. No character ever develops without a certain amount of mortification of that which is evil. It will hurt a bit, yes. If you... When a violinist tightens the string, if that string of the violin were conscious, it might shriek with pain. The violinist would say, My dear string, this is to give you a better tone. If a block of marble were conscious, it would probably protest when the chisel strikes it. But as Michelangelo said, there's a beautiful form inside of every block of marble, and all you have to do is just cut away that which is not good. That's mortification. Then there's finally limitation. Limitation refers to that which is good. For example, caviar. Now, would a person eat, for example, too much caviar? Well, no one would say, well, no, I will limit myself and just take that which is good for my health or for my enjoyment at the present time. Take a drink. Drink of alcohol. There's nothing intrinsically evil about alcohol. But a man will say, it's good, but I do not want too much of it. 
then I would be abusing that which is good. So I will limit myself. Maybe what he would do is say, well, I used to take five or six cocktails. Now I'll just take one, and the price of the others I'll send to Bishop Sheen for help his poor people in India. <laughs> Never know, they may do that. God love you if you do, too. Apropos of limitation. You know, we do have to impose hard things upon ourselves. Let me tell you something about when I first started teaching. After all, I did not start teaching here in America. I started teaching in England. Not every teacher is that kind of pupils. I tried it on a foreign nation before I tried it on my own fellow countrymen. And I remember when I was teaching dogmatic theology in a seminary in London. I saw very clearly that there were two things that I would have to limit myself on. The first was not to read notes. In other words, if I sat at my desk and kept reading my notes or reading out of books, I would never, never be a teacher. So I had to discipline myself, get away from notes. That is why so much teaching really is the communication of information on the notebook of a professor to the notebook of a student without passing through the mind of either. <laughs> and then the second thing that I saw that I had to do was to stand. As Horace said, see this may flurry Prius TV flandum. If you want me to weep, you must weep first. If you're going to communicate any truth with a certain amount of enthusiasm with fire, you can't sit. You have to stand. Believe me, it was hard to get away from my notes and to get up and stand before the students. And I was not very successful because I bumped into one of them in England about two years ago, and he said, no, about five years ago, I was teaching then in Washington. He said, what are you doing? I said, teaching. He said, I hope you're a better teacher now than you were when you taught us. I wouldn't be on this program if I hadn't done those hard things in England. Now coming back to character, something is going to be repressed in each and every one of us. And we have to decide what it's going to be. If we were simple creatures, just flesh, had no spirit and no infinite aspirations, we would never have to discipline ourselves. But if you want peace of soul and contentment and joy on the inside, the evil has to be dissipated and spent. Why do it? You do it because you love. A woman loves the young man and she will say, you like my hair this way? She wants to please him. You like me in red. Do you not think there are people who want to please God? Because they love you. That's the way real characters are made. If therefore we could crush this ever craving lust for bliss that kills all bliss and learn to lose our lives, our barren unit lives, to find again a thousand lives in those for whom we die. So are we men and women. In God's great universe, wherein 
not lives for self. All all from crown to footstool spend themselves on others. The sun that only shines to light a world. The clouds whose glory is to die in showers. The fleeting streams who in their ocean grave Flee the decay of stagnant self-content. The soil that yields its marrow to the flower. The flower that breathes a thousand velvet worms all spend themselves on others. Shall man then, whose twofold being is the mystic knot, that links both earth to heaven, shall he forsooth, whose every breath is debt on debt, forget what God hath made him? Nay, rather let him prove himself creation's Lord, by free will gift of that which they by nature's law must suffer. Take up his cross and follow Christ his Lord. You are listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me for this week's edition of Bishop Sheen Presents. Very beautiful words from Archbishop Sheen uh, talking about character building, and, you know, of course, he uh, brings us along uh, during his program, of course, uh, tells a few jokes to warm us up, but, of course, he really wants to share the gospel. And that whole beautiful passage from sacred scripture about picking up your cross and following the Lord is so important. And also that um, beautiful, humble example our Lord gave of laying down his life for his friends. And so, uh, again, what is our motivation? Do we please God because we love him uh, or we want to be seen by others? You know, what are our motives? But uh, we have to lose our lives for others. And um, there's a term that uh, many people um, share about Archbishop Sheen. They said that he was a servant to all. And he truly was. He didn't really do much for himself. He was always thinking of others. And, and that's the making of a saint. It really is. And so he encourages us to, you know, please God because we love him. And that is our motivation because of our love for him. And that we truly do lose our lives for others, that we lay down our life for our friends, our families, for the good uh, you know, virtues that it, uh, we need to practice each and every day. So, again, not living for self, but living for God. It's so important. All right, we're going to share with you now a catechism lesson from Archbishop Sheen. 
Uh, he's going to be talking about baptism. And I get asked all the time, you know, what book should I buy? Is there, uh, again, a collection of Sheen's works that are helpful with regards to the faith? And I say, you know, uh, there is a beautiful book uh, available through Sophia Institute Press. Uh, it's called Archbishop Sheen's Book of Sacraments. Uh, it's actually two books in one. Uh, the very popular 1951 book, Three to Get Married, is in this edition, along with Sheen's 1962 book, These Are the Sacraments. So a great collection to have in your home, uh, these two seminal works by Archbishop Sheen. Uh, but he does explain the sacraments in detail in this book, and it is really beautiful to see just how powerful the sacraments are, and of course the deep meaning uh, behind every sacrament. So uh, may I recommend this book to you, Archbishop Sheen's Book of Sacraments, available through Sophia Institute Press, and their website is simply sophiainstitute.com. And they're offering a, a very special 25% discount to all our Radio Maria listeners. Uh, you, know, you know, there's always a promo code that you will enter when you check out. And so use the promo code SHEEN25 and you'll receive a 25% discount from Sophia Institute Press. And it doesn't matter what book it is. It doesn't have to be, you know, a Fulton Sheen book. It could be a book by another popular author. So... Uh, they've got thousands of books available at Sophia Institute Press. And so may I invite you to visit their website and look at their great lineup of Archbishop Sheen's writings. And, of course, there's other places to purchase the book. Uh, there's that big bookstore called Amazon and uh, other, again, our, our local retailers. So Archbishop Sheen's Book of Sacraments. So that's my my pick of the week, I like to say. But uh, as we're sharing, of course, Sheen's uh, audio recordings on the sacraments. So without further ado, may I present to you Archbishop Sheen's uh, catechism series where he will be speaking on the topic of baptism. Please enjoy. Peace be to you. In order to live a natural life, we have to be born to it. In order to live a supernatural or divine life, we must be born to it, and that is the sacrament of baptism, which is the subject of this lesson. Baptism is the sacrament that incorporates us into the mystical body of Christ, the Church, and is therefore called the door of the Church. There is just a faint parallel to be drawn between the Church and the nation in this sense. Most of us did not wait until we were 21, then studied the Constitution and the history of the United States, and decide to become American citizens. We were born out of the womb of America. The country was first. We were born into it as citizens. But in the strict sense, the church itself is first, Christ's mystical body. Baptism incorporates us into it. We are born out of the womb of the church. As we explained before, we do not become members of the church in somewhat the same way as a brick is added to brick 
in a house. We become incorporated to the church very much as cells expand from central cells. But you may ask, what difference does the pouring of a little water make? Well, as regards the water itself, it probably makes very little difference. That is to say, the water alone. Take the water in a steam engine. You might ask, well, what difference does a little water make? When you combine it with the mind and the spirit of an engineer, it can drive a steam engine from one end of the country to the other. And so too, when water is united with the spirit of God, it is capable of making us something that we are not, namely partakers of his divine nature. Remember the beautiful description of baptism that is given in the Gospel of St. John. I shall read the third chapter, verse 1 down to 7. There was a man called Nicodemus, a Pharisee, and one of the rulers of the Jews, who came to see Jesus by night. Master, he said to him, We know that thou hast come from God to teach us. No one, unless God were with him, could do the miracles which thou doest. Jesus answered him, Believe me when I tell you this. A man cannot see the kingdom of God without being born anew. Nicodemus asked him, How is it possible that a man should be born when he is already old? Can he enter into a womb a second time and so come to birth? Jesus answered, Believe me, no man can enter the kingdom of God unless birth comes to him from water and from the Holy Spirit. What is born by natural birth is a thing of nature. What is born by spiritual birth is a thing of of the Spirit. Our Lord is here speaking of a second birth that is completed by two agencies, water and the Holy Spirit. Water oven by itself can exercise no spiritual influence, but it is a material sign of what is done and communicated invisibly and spiritually in the soul thanks to the words of baptism I baptize thee in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Water was rather a good sign for the sacrament of baptism. First of all, it signifies a washing, and baptism washes us from our sins. Furthermore, water is transparent to light signifies how light can be communicated, the light of faith, into the soul. The Greeks used to say that all life came from water. 
Their biology may have been wrong, but theologically they were rather sound, for all divine life really does begin with water. Notice that our blessed Lord said to Nicodemus that unless he was born again of baptism in the Holy Spirit, he could not enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, it was impossible. We should not be surprised at this. After all, we cannot live a human life unless we're born of the flesh. And we cannot live a divine life unless we are born of God. Now, we're capable of that. We are, as some philosophers have said, kapox dei, we are capable of God. Nature is full of examples of such capacities. All seeds are of this nature. They are dead until favorable circumstances of soil quicken them into life. The egg of a bird has in it the capacity to become a bird like the parent, but it remains a dead thing and will corrupt if the parent forsakes it. There are many of the summer insects which are twice born, first of their insect parents, then of the sun. If the frost comes in place of the sun, they die. The caterpillar has already a life of its own, with which no doubt it is well content. But enclosed in its nature as a creeping thing, it has a capacity for becoming something higher and different. It may become a moth or a butterfly. But in most, the capacity is never developed. They die before they reach that end. Circumstances do not favor their development. These analogies show how common it is for capacities of life to lie dormant and how common the thing it is for a creature in one stage of its existence to have a capacity for passing into a higher stage. But, note this, a capacity which can be developed only by some agency outside of it and adapted to it. It is in this condition man is born of his human parents. He is born with a capacity for higher life than that which he lives as an animal in this world. There is in him a capacity for becoming something different and higher. That capacity lies dormant and dead until the Holy Spirit comes and quickens it. The influence has to come from without there must be the efficient touch of the Holy Spirit, the impartation of his life. The capacity to be a child of God is man's, but the development of this lies with God. We have to be quickened from without. We cannot give physical birth to ourselves, and we cannot give divine birth to ourselves. When the sacrament is received, what are some of the effects? One of the principal effects is that it remits original sin. That is to say, that sin of nature which we have inherited from Adam. 
If we are adults, who've never been baptized before, baptism remits not only original sin, but all of our personal sins. Imagine, therefore, a great sinner being baptized on his deathbed. Suppose he dies immediately after baptism. He has no sins to go before the judgment seat of God. And the reason is he has just been born. We are not, however, to presume that God will give us this grace for our deathbed. Baptism, therefore, is something that makes us pass out of one land or one kingdom to another. It is like the passage of the Jews over the Dead Sea from the slavery of Egypt to the land of freedom. And baptism is a passage like that where we are transmuted from the kingdom of earth to the kingdom of heaven. We no longer belong to the race of Adam. We belong to the race of the new Adam. We pass from one master to another. That is why in the ceremony of baptism, the one who was baptized is asked, Dost thou renounce Satan? Are you willing to pass from the overlordship of Satan to the overlordship of Christ? We die, therefore, in, in baptism to our old nature. That is why in the early church, baptism was often given by immersion. St. Paul tells us that when we are baptized, we are buried with Christ. It is like our old Adam being crucified. And then, when we are baptized which corresponds to the resurrection, we receive the newness of the life of Christ. There are therefore in the world really not a multiplicity of races and nations. There are two humanities. One is the humanity of Adam and the other is the humanity of Christ. One is the unregenerate humanity and the other is the reborn, spiritualized humanity those who are incorporated into the mystical body of Christ. Nothing else to be noted about baptism is this, that there is no such thing as being baptized into a certain sect. For example, no one has baptized a holy roller. No one is baptized into the four-square gospel. No one is baptized into the triangular church. St. Paul says, for all you who have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. We are baptized into Christ's body, which is the church. That is when there is only one body. That is why it is not necessary for us, if we are absolutely certain of the baptism of anyone outside of the church, to re-baptize that person. It makes no difference who baptized. It is only important that the one who baptized outside of the church have the necessity, or rather the intention, of doing what the church intends to do. But today, we cannot be sure that there are many who believe in the divinity of Christ, original sin, and therefore when they baptize have the intention of doing what the church intends. 
I know of one who baptizes his catechumens with a water lily. He stands them up before him and strikes each of them on the head with a lily and declares them baptized. It is a water lily, I should say, but it is hardly a valid baptism. But the point to be noted is we are all baptized into the one church, the one body of Christ. Whether we know it or not. Here is a difficulty that is worth considering. There are many who do not have an opportunity to be baptized. How about them? It must be noted that there are three kinds of baptism. In addition to the baptism of water, there is also the baptism of desire and baptism of blood. Now, baptism of desire takes place when a person who has never received baptism loves God above all things and desires to be ardently united with him, has sorrow for sins, and is resolved to be baptized as soon as he can if he knows anything about baptism. There must indeed be many pagans and Buddhists, Confucianists, and all peoples who have had a desire according to the light that they have received to be united with God and have followed his commandments, would willingly accept anything that God revealed to them. They have baptism of desire. And therefore they are incorporated in some way to the mystical body of Christ. In addition to that, there is baptism of blood. Suppose you were receiving instructions in a land where there was persecution. The soldiers of a dictator came to you and asked you if you intended to join the church. You answered in the affirmative. They would then sentence you to death. Rather than deny the faith that you had and the hope that you might be baptized, you submit to death. That is what is known as baptism by blood. Because here there is the supreme witness to Christ by blood, as there is a supreme love of Christ, as supreme as it can be in the natural order, and the part of those who have baptism of desire. I was once instructing a person who came to the subject of baptism, and she said, I have never been baptized. Suppose that I should die tonight. What would happen to me? Well, I said, you certainly desire, do you not, to receive baptism? She answered most ardently, I can hardly wait. She did die that night. She had baptism of desire. Another difficulty. How about children who through no fault of their own die without baptism? Are they punished and sent to hell? No, no, no. Unbaptized children 
are not sent to hell, nor are they punished. Their capacity for the supernatural order was never actualized, but they have all of the natural happiness that is possible for them. And that state we call limbo. Another effect of baptism is the infusion of certain virtues into the soul. These virtues are seven. Faith, hope, charity, prudence, justice, temperance, fortitude. The first four, or rather the first three, faith, hope, and charity, relate us directly to God so that we believe in him, hope in him, and love him. The other virtues are concerned with the means or the steps by which we come to God. Namely, we are prudent, for example, about the use of this world in order to attain the kingdom of God, and so on for the other virtues. These virtues are infused into the soul. Now, in order to understand the virtue, the best way to think of it, probably, is in terms of a habit. There are two kinds of habits, acquired and infused. An acquired habit is playing tennis or playing a violin. An infused habit is swimming for a duck. Now, these virtues are infused into the soul. It is very much as if we woke up some morning and discovered that we could play musical instruments which before we never touched. Then we would have an infused habit or virtue in the natural order which was not our own. When we're baptized, the habit of faith is infused or the virtue of faith. That, incidentally, is why when children come to us in our parochial schools, small though they be, they are immediately receptive to all the teachings about God, our blessed Lord, and the Church. They already have the faith. We do not have to prove to them the existence of God. We merely have to give reasons and give developments and explanations of the faith that is already in them. A brief word now about particularly faith and hope and charity. Faith is not a wish to believe or a will to believe something, something contrary to reason. Faith is not living as if something were true. Faith is the acceptance of a truth on the authority of God revealing, as manifested in the Church and in Scripture. God alone causes faith in the believer. And faith is not the acceptance of abstract ideas. It is so often said, oh, by faith you have to accept a number of dogmas. No. Faith is participation in the life of God. In faith, two persons meet. 
God and ourselves. Our affirmation of faith does not come because we see a truth very clearly, but it comes from the vision of him who reveals that truth. And we know that he cannot deceive nor be deceived. Faith is not contrary to reason. Many will ask, how could you ever accept the faith? Did you not have to abandon reason? No, faith perfects reason. Faith is to reason very much like a telescope is to the eye. A telescope enables us to see new worlds and new stars that often by our own selves and unaided eyes we could not see. And so too, faith enables us to see truths which we could not see by our reason alone. Here is another fact. Human reason is stronger with faith than without it. Just as our senses are stronger with reason than without reason. Take a drunkard. He has lost his power of reason. Do his senses function well? Does he see well? Does he walk well? Does he talk well? Why do not his senses work well? Because God intended that they should be perfected by reason. So too. Reason is to be perfected by faith. That too is often why a person who loses faith will discover that his reason does not exercise itself as well as it did before. It's very interesting to read the writings of those who once had faith and lost it. Their mind is wandering and confused. We have the same eyes at night as we have in the daytime, but we cannot see at night. The reason is we lack the additional light of the sun. And so let two people look out on a host. One sees bread, and the other with the eyes of faith sees our blessed Lord. It's because one has a light which the other has not. Therefore, we thank God for revealing to us this beautiful sacrament of baptism, which gives us this light, which makes us his children. The ceremonies of the sacrament are beautiful. Assist some time at a baptism, and the priest will explain all of the ceremonies as they take place. They are beautiful, like putting on the white robe. Dante spoke of it, saying that purgatory was a place where we go to wash our baptismal robes. Would to God that that robe of innocence that we receive in baptism, we could always keep clean before God and man. God love you. You are listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me for uh, this week's edition of Bishop Sheen Presents, and may I invite you to share this uh, recording with a friend. 
Uh, it's amazing how Archbishop Sheen continues to touch lives uh, today in this world. Uh, even though he's gone to be with our Lord uh, many years ago, he passed away in 1979. His uh, writings, his voice, and his uh, video recordings still live on today. And may I invite you to visit our website simply at bishopsheentoday.com because we need Bishop Sheen today. So again, the website bishopsheentoday.com where there's hundreds of uh, video recordings, audio recordings, and a number of his books available uh, for you to enjoy once again. And again, I recommend the book, Archbishop Sheen's Book of Sacraments, uh, available through Sophia Institute Press. So again, share Sheen where you can, and of course, lives will continue to be touched. My dear friends, may you have a blessed week, and until the next time that we meet, may the good Lord continue to bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. God love you.